You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. It was so nice to share the practice with all of you, and I really, really appreciate you coming in and trusting me to hold the space of the practice. That really, really means a lot. So I've been practicing Ashtanga yoga for more than 20 years, and yoga for even longer than that. As many of you know, the Ashtanga yoga method is super traditional. It has the reputation for being um, kind of very intense and very focused on the traditional method as it's been passed on from teacher to student. And as I've been practicing for these 20 years or so, one of the probably most important things that to understand about the Ashtanga method is that even though it is traditional and even though it appears to be the same thing that you do every day, it's totally different every single day because you as a human being are totally different every single day. And in this way, the practice itself is one of the most consistent and persistent mirrors that you can have to shine the light on yourself. And most of the time when people react to the Ashtanga method, what they're reacting to is shining that light on whatever places of, you know, whatever shadows or whatever inconsistencies, whatever things we would otherwise avoid kind of remain inside. So... Everybody normally thinks that I was just born like I am right now, but um, I have my mom here to prove it. I was not born naturally flexible, nor was I born naturally strong. I was never a gymnast. I was never a dancer. I was never an athlete. I never did any competitive sports training. And, and then I started yoga. And I was what many people, or what I call now as a teacher, body foreign. And this is a concept that I think many people who don't have any prior training in any physical discipline are before they come to the practice, which means I was like a foreigner in my body. Um, if you can think back to the last time you were in a foreign country, can you do that? Maybe a country where not only did you not speak the language, but you didn't know the alphabet. For example, if you've been to Thailand, or if you've been to Japan, or if you've been to Russia, or something like this, or Greece, for example, you could go into the grocery store and try to discover that you want to buy soy milk and stand in the grocery store scratching your head, wondering, what is this liquid substance that is refrigerated that I am now purchasing? Is it soy milk? It seems to have a bean on the front of it, but I don't know what that means. Let's bring it home and make an experiment. Oh joy, I bought beans, you know? And, and I have done, I've actually done something like that um, uh, numerous times. And then I, I just parentheses, I'll give you a wonderful trick if you're in a country that you don't, don't know the, not only do you not know the language, but you can't know the, you don't know the alphabet, the complete, it's like a character driven language. You go to a coffee store and you order a soy or coconut or non-dairy milk version of your hot drink and you observe what that container looks like. <laughs> And you emblazon that image into your mind. And then you go on a mission in the grocery store to repeat that image. And I've done that very successfully. And it's better than coming home with bean juice um, for tea. Gross. So I was like that, walking around the grocery store in my body, not knowing where the soy milk was, not knowing what was yogurt, not knowing what was shampoo versus dishwashing liquid, and trying to figure out, what do I do? 
Do I lift my hips? Do I move my shoulder this way? Do I rotate this? Do I squeeze this? Do I not squeeze that? I have no idea. And one of the most frustrating things was the direction that my teacher, Patabi Joyce, used to give everyone. Do your practice and all is coming. And I don't know about you, but I'm a little bit of a skeptical person. Anybody else skeptical person? You want to join me in the skeptics path? And when he said, do your practice and all is coming, I felt like, <clears throat> are you really sure? Number one, are you sure that that's appropriate for me? Number one. Number two, what is the all that's coming exactly? Is it like an all everything bagel? Or is it all the poses that I want? Or is it all the happiness that I want? Or is it something else entirely? Well, I heard Patabi Joyce talk about that numerous times. Do your practice and all is coming. And then one time I heard him at a qualifier that was very important. Practice properly and all is coming. And I was like, this makes more sense, you know? Because one of those definitions of insanity is to do the same thing over and over again and what? Expect the different results, right? And do the same thing over and over again. And I'm going to pray by the grace of God that one day it changes. And God is on the other side going, you know what, buddy? You've been trying that 30 years. And I keep telling you, try something different. And do the same thing every day. I'm just going to do it just like that. And then you cross over and you're like, why didn't all my dreams come true? I tried to tell you. I sent you a messenger. I sent you an angel. I sent you a dog to lead you in the right direction. And you kept doing the same thing every day. Practice properly. And all is coming. Guess you got on the recycle path. You get to try it again. So my teacher didn't care whether you got it in this lifetime or next because he comes from the faith that was like, thousand lifetimes, no problem. You Westerners are in such a rush, you know? And I'm a Westerner and I'm like, yeah, I'm in a little bit of a rush. I don't know if I'm getting those thousand lifetimes, you know? So um, there's a funny, funny cartoon or like meme that's going around some people in the afterlife. Um, and there are two kind of like angel looking, cherub looking uh, beings. And then um, they get souls in. And then there's one container that says recyclable and another container that says non-recyclable. So all the Christians come in and the people who follow the Jewish faith come in and people who follow the Muslim faith come in and they go in the non-recyclable container. And then the Hindu people come in, they go recyclable. And then the Buddhist people come in, they go in the recyclable. So I don't know if I'm recyclable or not, right? I genuinely don't know. I'm not really assigned to any particular religion. So I don't have to find out. Am I recyclable? You know, it's like that container that, that like the Kiwis come in. You're like, I think it's recyclable, but I'm not sure. Right? So I'm, I'm just going to give it a shot. Let's see. So the idea that all is coming means you have to practice properly. So what does that mean? First of all, meet your body. If you don't meet your body and you don't use the tool of asana to bring your mind into deep contact with your body, we'll never achieve the goal of yoga. So if we understand, first of all, what we're practicing and what the all that's promised to us is, then we understand the nature of the discipline and the tradition of the Ashtanga practice. So the first thing is meet your body. Say hello to your body. This is one of the main reasons why yoga is so healing to our Western culture. We've spent at least the last 500 years, if not the last 5,000 years, dissociating from our bodies. You know, the kind of uh, epic uh, or, or sort of apex of Western intellectual thought, we could say uh, sort of reached a a zenith, not maybe not the zenith, but a zenith at the uh, age of enlightenment with the classic words, I think, therefore I am. And this is perhaps one of the most wonderful statements of the, the, the sort of the, the, the placement on, on, the, on the altar of the mind, of the mind itself. I think, therefore I am. And in yoga, we call the thinking mind the monkey mind. 
So we question our thoughts in the yoga practice. So to practice properly means to bring the mind out of the repetition of thoughts. And if we continue operating in Western logic, then we can completely dissociate mind from body, which many of us have been indoctrinated in just from living in you know, the, the Western culture. So in the yoga practice, first thing to understand, practice properly, use the tool of asana to bring your mind back into your body. So how do you know that the asana is working for you? This is a good question. What do you think? Should you see improvement in terms of strength and flexibility? What do you think? Yes. <laughs> We're like, I want that. Yes. So we want it. But I got to tell you, sometimes you will see decrease in strength and flexibility. And that doesn't mean the asana is not working for you. So how do you know the asana is working for you? If it's not going to be measurable achievement in the realm of physical improvement, what do you think? What other metrics do we have? Hmm? How, and, then what, and then that's a feeling. So what's the feeling? A feeling of ease and flow. How would we measure that? Breathing. breathing is a good one, right? So breathing, being able to breathe in the posture. There are some people who like can squeeze their body into a little raisin with the legs behind the head and they hold their breath and they hold everything inside and it looks cool for an Instagram picture. But there are no breathing because Instagram doesn't really capture your breathing. And, you know, even sometimes I put my practice on, I like practice and put a live on Instagram because I feel like I want to show people that practice is real. Almost like maybe 20% of the comments are, why do you sound like Darth Vader? <laughs> you know, I'm like, because I'm, 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 exactly, I'm supposed to, I'm breathing. I'm not crossing over to the dark side. I'm trying to <laughs> breathe, you know? Get some stuff out. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So the so breath is a, is, a, is a really good way to figure out if you're in ease and flow. And this is why we regulate the breath and modulate the breath so that we understand that the asanas are there to stimulate some response. And then we breathe to regulate our emotional balance in response to pleasure or pain. And the asana itself is meant to be a tool for feeling. So I would, I would give you another metric. Do you feel something? And if you feel something in that asana, it's working for you. Not do you feel good, not do you feel bad, just something. I feel my hip. Nice to meet you, my hip. How have you been? And your hip will be like, I'm pretty good. You've been talking to me for like 30 odd years, but yeah, we're cool. Thanks for checking in with me. Yeah, we're nice. I'd like to go for a walk sometimes. You know? And we're like, okay, let's try that. You know? So then we meet every single cell of the body kind of just like that. So feeling. So we have breath. We have feeling or sensation. And then there's one more metric. Who can who want to take a guess at another metric? Notice that these are all internal. If we have breath, body, what do you think the last one is? Maybe the mind. What you're thinking, right? What kinds of thoughts you're thinking? I don't know, I don't know about you, but when I first started the practice, I was, like, without mincing words, kind of a little bit bonkers in my brain. You know, I would walk into the practice and I would have all sorts of a host of, of negative thoughts about myself and about the world. I'd be really stressed out and irritated doing yoga. Isn't that crazy? And then I'd be stressing out about, and this is probably even more crazy. I'd be stressing out about, get this, the yoga poses, right? Oh my God, am I going to do good backbends today? I don't know. What's going to happen later? Am I going to be able to lift up? Oh, look, it was a crap jump back. I can't believe it. I better do, I'm stressing out about yoga in the middle of yoga. 
this is the height of insanity. You know, from the outside looking in, oh, Kino is very focused inside. I can't believe it. I'm stressing out. I'm, I'm having micro explosions in my brain. And I mean, I don't know when it shifted, but at some moment, the, the dialogue changed. And I realized, and I think it's probably pretty much common knowledge in our contemporary world or even the alternative world, that once you're at peace with yourself, you're at peace with the whole world or the, the degree to which you're at peace with yourself is the mirror of the degree to which you're at peace with the world. And I'm not totally at peace with myself, but it's dramatically better than it was. I can say dramatically better. So that when I finish my practice, I consider every practice a good one. Not only the ones where I hit the jump back or the legs went behind the head, but if I use those metrics, breath, look, I'm breathing. Wow, my breath, great, I felt my breath. Here's my body, it's alive, it talked to me, it said things, great. I had a dialogue with my body. We're friends. And then my mind. Here's my mind. When my mind said things to me that were generally nicer than they used to be. Oh, I'm a kinder person. I'm a happier person. Great. The practice is working for me. Fantastic. That's really the essence of yoga. If you come into the practice each day, we can understand that we need this consistent, persistent mirror of these same asanas so that we never escape or evade the places where all of our obstacles may remain. If we're left on our own, there are a couple of things that happen. Number one, what do you do when you're on your own? Sleep in, eat waffles, right? Doesn't that sound nice? Sleep in, eat waffles. Sleep in, waffle delivery. Could be a raw vegan waffle. It could be, you know, it could be a coconut waffle in the shape of a, a waffle. Um, I, I took my, my husband and I went to Bali once and we were teaching there once. We went, I met, I've been actually been many times. We've been together twice. The second time we went, we taught at a, um, a, a raw vegan retreat and he didn't know that it was a raw vegan retreat. If you know my husband, he, uh, his favorite food is cheese and then his second favorite food is coffee and there, caffeine was banned, obviously cheese was banned. And then every morning they produced this menu, Belgian waffles. So he got very excited when he saw the menu, Belgian waffles. Wow, that's so exciting. Then he would walk in and he went, excuse me, where are the waffles? And then they would point to this like date nut kind of shaped thing like a waffle. And then he would look at it and go, this is salad, you know? And then, <laughs> and then in the lunch, they presented this menu, lasagna, lasagna. Wow, cheese and pasta for him, one of his two favorite things in the world. And then he looked at them and lasagna. And then they produced this thing with like lettuce leaves and some tomato. I thought it was wonderful. And then, um, and then Tim said, excuse me, where's the lasagna? And then they pointed at it here. This is also salad. And after two days, he said, excuse me, the menu is just fiction. Everything is salad. Just put salad, 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 more salad, 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 salad. I'm only eating salad. After the third day, he lost so much weight. He said, please, can we escape and get some cheese? You know? Anyway, I went with him. I mean, they're married. You have to sacrifice. So, I mean, I didn't eat the cheese, but I, I hid it in my purse um, so we could come back into the retreat. Is now it's far enough so that uh, we hopefully won't get in trouble for it. So, anyhow, the idea with this, right, is that here we are, what type of thoughts we're thinking, what type of person we are, how forgiving we are to ourselves, how forgiving we are to others, and how, how much happiness we have in our hearts, how much happiness we share with others. But the reverse is true, how much misery you carry inside of yourself, how much misery you share with the world. So we're here on this path, on this practice, to awaken and to, 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 to change our minds and to make an upgrade, you could say, into the software that's the operating system in our mind so we can be better humans in the world, 
right? And we're not going to be perfect. We shouldn't delude anyone. We shouldn't delude ourselves and think, you know, we're going to be the second coming or the next Buddha or the incarnation of, of, of you know, some enlightened being from the past. We can take where we start and expect 5% better. And that humble goal is achievable and attainable for everyone. So wherever we are, 5% better. And in this way, we can never judge anyone else's path because you don't know where they started. You can point, oh, look, this person's going around honking, making a misery around them, but you don't know where they were, where they started from. Are they 5% better? Are you 5% better? And that's something to ask yourself after, I would say, a minimum of 10 years of practice. Less than 10 years of practice, then we have all the obstacles that can get in the way. The first obstacle that can get in the way is the feeling of failure over and over again, the feeling of failure. You come to the mat, what happens? Is it easy? No. Yoga is false advertising, you know what I mean? You see all these pictures of people and they have like this little smile. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's so nice, I'm in bliss. Little bit of samadhi, you know, a little bit of moksha, a little bit of liberation. And this is like the, you know, delusional salad menu. And then the idea is that we're working. Right? And you can expect to work. Now, if you expect it to be easy from the beginning, what will happen is that that failure will get you. Oh, look, I'm crap at this. Look, she can put her legs right behind her head. I can't. Look, I'm crap at this. Forget it, I quit. So the failure. The second thing that will get you, if you don't keep practicing, I want to say for a minimum of 10 years, is boredom. If you haven't experienced the period of boredom in your practice, you haven't gone over one of the biggest obstacles in the spiritual path. Boredom. It's boring after a little while. Anyone practicing more than 10 years? Right? You felt the boredom at some moment? Look, it's the sun salutations. I'm going to raise my hands now. Here I go. Look, it's downward dog. It's the same old dog that it was 20 years ago. This is an old dog. It doesn't learn any new tricks. It just stays there in the same shape over and over again. 20 years later, here I am. It does change a little. It does, but the, it does change, of course. It does, but it's still the same. The sun salutations are still a come inhale, two exhale, trini inhale. That's why it is like not change. Then you know your triangle pose. Here we go. So if we haven't reached that point of boredom then we haven't crossed one of the abysses, right? One of kind of like these, this, this territory that's kind of like, you know, like a death valley. And it's kind of, it, it's almost like one of these dark nights of the soul that every yoga practitioner has to go to. Because boredom doesn't get you. Then on the other side of the arc of boredom, if you face failure, you face boredom, then we have fear. And fear comes up when we have injury. So how many of you have had an injury? everyone, because life is injurious, right? So if yoga didn't injure you, life will injure you, right? So what do they say? Statistically speaking, like bus accidents and airplane accidents and stupid things like falling up and down the stairs and like life climbing on muddy mountains, these sorts of things can be injurious, you know? So we experience life and fear comes up with injury. These are like, you know, the, the horsemen of the apocalypse of your practice. And once you stare them down, you cross over that bridge, then you know yourself in those moments of difficulty. You know yourself in the face of fear. Who am I when I'm afraid? Who am I when I feel like a failure? Who am I when I feel so down and out that there's no more hope left? Who am I when everything is so boring? And what's boring? Depression, right? Everything is meaningless, hopeless. It's the same thing over and over again. And if you cross those obstacles, 
These are written down obstacles. They're not new to our generation. They're written down thousands of years ago, documented in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras because it's a human condition. Once we know ourselves in this shadow side, then we can see the light. Then we get the consistency, the persistency to come in and say, I can, I can do it. I can face that failure. I can rise up because I am more than that. I can face the boredom because on the other side of boredom and the other side of the darkness of depression is a great wellspring of peace. On the other side of failure is confidence that's not tied to any achievement. On the other side of fear is faith, right? And these are lessons that are real for me and I think are real for everyone that keeps practicing. But if you get lost in any of those obstacles, you turn around and what my teacher used to say is, you have some difficulty in yoga, yoga will heal you. You have some difficulty in yoga and you stop practicing, he would say, that difficulty will remain always for the rest of your life, right? So it's a little bit like, keep practicing, buddy. You know what I mean? You better keep practicing, keep practicing. The other thing I want to say about the persistency of practice is that it requires habituated behavior to maintain consistency of practice. If you ask yourself this question every morning, it's highly unlikely you'll maintain a consistent practice for many years. Should I practice today? If you ask yourself that question, it's very unlikely that the answer is, No, uh, I should probably stay in bed. It'd be good for me. My body needs rest. And I, I think I smell waffles being made for me in the other room. This is very nice. Sometimes when I'm practicing, my husband gets up and he starts making breakfast in the middle of my practice. And, and I'm like, why haven't you practiced? Why are you making breakfast? Are you going to eat breakfast before? And then the smell of breakfast is very difficult to complete the practice, you know? And then sometimes he's walked into the room holding his breakfast and started to talk to me. And I was like, how is this acceptable? This is, leave, at least leave the room with your breakfast and put on an incense, you know? So let me finish over here. And uh, you know, even if I'm not eating cheese, it still smells kind of nice on the sandwich, you know what I mean? So, or at least the idea of it, you know? So, so persistence, should I practice? We need habituated behavior. We need, and the habituated behavior is more than just, should I practice? This is why Ashtanga yoga is simple. You do your practice six days a week, just like you brush your teeth every single day, two times a day. You're not getting up in the morning going, should I brush my teeth today? Is it like, should I do that? Without question, you go, you grab your toothbrush, you start brushing your teeth, right? Or now you turn it on and it brushes for you, depending on which model you have. Um, so, you know, you're not supposed to do both at the same time, but you know, um, but you don't ask yourself, should I do that? Now, Does everybody floss or do you ask yourself, should I floss? Because if you ask that question, then the flossing is going down until you go to the dentist and the dentist, did you floss? Yes, every day. Yes, every day, morning and evening, I'm flossing all the time. It's my favorite thing to do. And you leave, you're very inspired. So in this way, the dentist is like your yoga teacher. The more you see your yoga teacher, the more regular you are seeing a yoga teacher, the more you keep the habituated nature of your practice. And in this way, it's not only six days a week practice, the time is important. Practice at the same time every day. You brush your teeth at the same time. You don't randomly brush your teeth in the middle of the day, in the middle of a business meeting, right? You're like, excuse me, I forgot. Let me just do that real quick. But we did that the last two years, right? With the camera off and the, and the sound off um, on Zoom, right? Um, so when, when we think about that same time, six days a week, not a question, we make it habituated behavior. What else do we need to habituate? What we practice. Because the other thing that decreases consistency is you get on your mat and you stand there and then you ask yourself, what should I do? What should I do? What do you think I should do? 
Should I do forward bend or back bend? Should I do arm balance or core? Should I do core and arm balance? Should I do balance or should I do breathing? Maybe I should do breathing. Should I do meditation or should I do breathing? Should I do breathing and meditation and then core and then back bend? What should I do? You know? And so Ashtanga Yoga, it takes the complete question out of your mind. You get on your mat, you do your practice. I get up, I do opening prayer, I do sun salutation, I go like this, da 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 da, and then it's over. You have removed what's called decision fatigue. And this increases the likelihood that you'll maintain the consistency of the practice because you need that super ego kind of, kind of motivation to just bring yourself to the mat. If you then need to question, what should I do? What'll happen? You'll do what you're good at naturally, what you like to do, and it will devolve into just kind of, uh, uh, instead of removing obstacles, you'll end up perpetuating obstacles or entrenching obstacles. See, we're trying to attenuate or weaken those behaviors within ourselves that remove us away or, or, or that, that remove us from the state, our natural state of who we really are. And if we just keep going into the pattern of the mind rather than the discipline of the practice, then we're going to end up uh, just not getting that 5% happier. We're going to end up 5% worse. And, and this is kind of the battle that we're waging in our mind each day. And we need all the tools we can. So this is why it's there for us. Consistency, the same practice, removing the obstacles to be able to practice. And I wouldn't be practicing here today if I asked myself every day, should I do it or what should I do? So I just strongly encourage each of you to, to stick to the, the discipline as much as you can, but to keep it heartful and light so that it's not this like whip that you're bearing down upon yourself. So you remember, oh, I'm here, I have this discipline, but I'm here to breathe and I'm here to feel my body, not to force. And I'm here to train my mind and to make friends with my mind. That's been my journey over the last 20 years. And, and I'm definitely at least 5% happier than I used to be, you know? So I think now I have had a lot to say, and I wanted to make sure that we have some time for questions. So please, if you have a question or something you wanted to ask me, now, now I think is a good time. Where are you from? That's a good question. Um, a lot of people ask me where I'm from. I'm from Miami. Okay. I was born and raised there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've tried to live in other places, but it didn't work. <laughs> um, you know, I kept coming back. Not only from- also from there? Mm-hmm. In the background of the well, my mom is Japanese and my dad is, my dad was Scottish. Yeah. Yeah. So my husband is from Denmark and uh, I tried to live in Denmark for a little while. It's a wonderful country. I really, really love Denmark and I really, really don't like the weather. <laughs> <laughs> so now we go every summer to visit the winter. Yeah, we visit the winter, uh, what my father-in-law used to call the green winter of Denmark, which is the summer. Yeah. And my father-in-law used to say that Denmark, they have two winters, the white winter <laughs> and the green winter. So I like to visit the green winter, and I have now a full wardrobe of winter clothes that I bring to the summer in Denmark. <laughs> it's very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I still haven't learned to wear shoes, though, because I am from Miami. It's a... Uh, it's still quite a struggle. Maybe some of you who live here can identify with that. You know? So, yeah. Bandhas. Hmm? The understanding of bandhas and the length of time you can hold a bandha through a breath in and out, where do you feel like it is like a muscle, the bandha, mm. the actual core point mm-hmm. of being in the in breath and an out breath? Would you sense? Mm. Um, the length of time that you can develop that core as like a muscle? Mm-mm-mm. Good question. So let's, let, let's, let's unpack that from the very beginning. The, the concept of bandha 
is the concept of these locks within the body, and they're accessed through the physical. And we traditionally say there are a couple of different of these bandhas or locks. There's mula bandha, which we talk a lot about in Ashtanga yoga. Patabi Joyce used to explain this as the contraction of the anus, or we now kind of evolved that into the activation of the full network of the muscles of the pelvic floor. Um, and mula bandha is said to be related to what's called the mula point. And the mula point is uh, the central, uh, the, the center, the, the sort of root of the center line of the body and is the center of what's called muladhara chakra or the, the root chakra, the first chakra. And when we have this mula point, this is also said to be um, mula klesha and the klesha is the obstacle. And so we say that this mula point is the root seed of our incarnation. And this is kind of uh, the delusion that we agreed to when we took this body, the forgetting that birth was. And without that mula klesha, the kind of um, uh, the, the tying of our sort of wise mind into the physical body, the delusion of the physical wouldn't persist. So mula klesha exists and mula bandha is said to be an access point to the discovery of this mula klesha. Right? Then when the mula klesha starts to be weakened or attenuated, then our life force gets more vibrant and full. Then we move up to what's called Udhyanabandha. Udhyanabandha is that lower navel area from the space between the navel and the pubic bone and the sides of the abdomen that kind of come in. And this relates to our second and third chakras. So when we have this lower region kind of drawn in, then what's said is that the energy can rise up the spine. And it's this kind of central axis orientation that most traditional hatha yoga is interested in. And we could call this in a contemporary way, a process of the ascension of our energy along, uh, along the center line of the body, which is sometimes called in Sanskrit, the Shushumna Nadi. And then we move higher and higher until we get to Jalandhara Bandha. And Jalandhara Bandha is this lock that we primarily use in pranayama or breathing practices, but it's sometimes touched on in yoga asanas. And this is kind of the last hurdle that our energy needs to cross over before we can feel an awakening of those more subtle energy centers in the sixth and seventh chakra, right? So um, when we have these physical locks kind of turned on, then all three of these are what's called Mahabandha, when all three come together. Very rare state, actually, that all three come together. We would attain that in meditation or in pranayama or maybe sometimes in the last moments of the practice, but very rarely. Finally, we have Chitta Bandha. If you haven't heard about that one, Chitta is the mind. Chitta Bandha. When, when it's said that when all, when Mahabandha is established, Chitta Bandha is also there, meaning we have mind control. We're able to keep our mind focused on a single point of attention in a thoughtless, wordless state of unity. Right? That's kind of a lot. We're like, so I'm supposed to get that from squeezing my anus? Right? And we're like, so, okay, let's try. And you're like, I didn't feel anything. Let me try again. I don't know. I feel constipated. Uh, let me try again. Yeah, nothing. I can't breathe anymore, right? And so it's like many people think the bandha is this the squeezing. So here's something to consider is that the physical is pointing to the energetic. So when we're working with breath, being able to maintain kind of a connection between the physical and the energetic is a transubstantiation, the, the kind of the, tran the, the, the movement from the physical to the spiritual, the physical to the energetic, that pranayama is. Right? So when we're talking about maintaining that bandha through the inhalation, through the exhalation, if it's in a pranayama practice, can be very, very much more subtle 
If we're talking about lift up and jump back, the physical needs to be there very strongly to support the physicality of the movement. So what we have to remember is when we're talking about bandha as muscle, the muscle is pointing to the energetic. And even in asana, some asanas will be more geared towards the energetic and some asanas will be geared more towards the physical, dependent on the asana, the nature of the asana, dependent on the student and the nature of the student. Those two things combined. Make sense? I have a big answer to if I squeeze my anus or not. So. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Sure. Hey, I really appreciate your explanation about the bandhas. And I have a similar question. So I noticed that for me, I feel like especially the female body, it's really important that my pelvic floor is relaxed. Not during the practice, but throughout the day. And I was wondering how... Um, how do you practice to make sure that you know you not don't make your pelvic floor muscles over tight, overly tight with your practice? Mm. So is it more like an engagement of the pelvic floor most of the time versus like actually pulling it up? Mm -hmm. When you do the asana and on the specific asanas, you actually like really pull it up. Mm. No, it's a very good question, and I think I'd like to contextualize it. So uh, the, the, the first thing to think about the pelvic floor is that the pelvic floor, physically speaking, is a muscle. And muscles can have what's called traumatic responses to life situations. So the pelvic floor is the seat of uh, one of the deepest, um, one of the, the most important nerves in our body called the vagus nerve. And the vagus nerve runs from the pelvic floor or the perineum all the way up into the brain. And it has this wonderful communication between the body and the brain. And when we have a traumatic experience of our life can be something we remember, can be something we don't remember. It can be generational trauma that we've inherited from those around us. Then the pelvic floor can, can, can actually hold trauma. And this usually results in what's called a hypertonic state. And this can happen not only with the pelvic floor, but any muscle in the body. We can think about what hypertonic means, right? So if we think tone, we think hypertone, then we have a muscle that is engaged all the time. So it's like a rubber band that's pulled to its maximum all the time. Now, usually people that have this in the pelvic floor also have it in other muscles. But sometimes some people only have it in the pelvic floor. Mm. I usually find it more... Um, you know, it's, it's more pervasive than just the pelvic floor if that condition is present. If you have a muscle that's hypertonic, that means it's already at its maximum almost all the time. If you then try to engage the hypertonic muscle, you will feel that the muscle is weak because you can't engage it more. But that's because it's like driving a car and you're already flooring the car. It's running at its maximum and then you try to pass someone on the highway and it doesn't work. Maybe not here, but like come to Miami. We drive like crazy. So <laughs> then, you know, then you try to pass someone. If your car is already in the red zone and you're like, yeah, let me go for it. Then you'll feel like, man, this car has no power. You know, um, we, we used to have a Prius and my husband used to say that all the time. He used to floor the car and be like, look, we're going 30. Um, now we get the Tesla and I'm like, don't do that with this car. You know, we're going to explode or take off to Mars. Maybe that's the goal. Um, so, so, so if you have that hypertonic situation, you cannot start off by squeezing mm -hmm. because you already, you're at your limits. So if you notice, if you've, maybe you have, cause you're interested in, in how you can relax the pelvic floor. Maybe you have figured out my pelvic floor is hypertonic. What a wonderful thing to realize. 
Because if you do your whole, don't realize that your whole life, the hypertonic pelvic floor can lead to various sort of medical problems as we age. So the fact that you know that already sets you up for long-term health in a better way than somebody else walking around, just walking around like, ah, I have no idea. And the pelvic floor is like, ah! You know, it's basically like a scream that's going on in the muscle persistently. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So the yeah. Well, so the the people who would be interested in I need to relax my pelvic floor and maybe you do though. Like it's something to consider. But the people who who would be interested in I need to make sure my pelvic floor is relaxed all the time are the people who have that hypertonic. It's more common than we think. So if we if we if we have someone my if you think my pelvic floor is weak then we need to relax the pelvic floor we need to come to a zero point and this is true for any muscle you have a muscle in your body that you feel is weak investigate whether it's actually weak or it's hypertonic and that's an interesting thing right I have a muscle that's weak oh I can't activate my arms is that because the arms are in a perma tension and they haven't relaxed so they have no more power because if that's the case. No amount of training will make it better until we learn to relax. And how do you relax? The nervous system. We have to calm down. We have to do a whole thing. So long story to go into. That's the hypertonic state. I should also say that there is the opposite called the hypotonic state. So can we think about that? What's that? Too relaxed. Too too loose. A spaghetti. Overcooked spaghetti. Pelvic floor like an overcooked spaghetti. We try to squeeze it, and it's like, yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to squeeze, but、uh, it's not for me, you know. And these muscles very hard to train, and also a very common trauma response. So we have fight, flight, freeze, freeze, play dead. I'm dead, can't hurt me anymore, right? So if you have too much squeeze, too little squeeze, too little squeeze, it, it, like the the hypotonic state is, in my opinion, sometimes more difficult to work with because it's harder to figure out how we should remain calm and activate. So how do we find that balance? We find the balance by first coming back to a zero point. And if we don't come back to a zero point, if it's too much squeeze or too little squeeze, then we never find that zero point of relaxation and release. So if your question is how do I find that balance, then we want to investigate when am I squeezing too much? When am I squeezing too little? When do I feel I'm pushing out when I should be pulling in, and just be in contact with the area throughout the day? If you're worried about how it's feeling throughout the day, what would happen if I were to draw in right now? What would happen if I let everything go right now? And you'll find the middle point as long as you're working with subtlety. But I wouldn't worry about over squeezing when you need it, as long as you can come back to the zero point. And this is also a lesson for the nervous system, right? So sometimes we need to be very alert, very attentive, right? Can you think of an example of when being very alert and very attentive might be useful? You have a child. That child is about to, you know, do something really, really dangerous. We don't want to be chilled out at that moment. We might want to be like, "Let me go prevent my child from dying." You know, alert, attentive. They're about to put their finger in the electrical socket. You may want to be alert and attentive. Not mean, right? Not angry, but alert and attentive. Everything's on. You know, so there are other times that you may want to be completely relaxed. You know, you're having a glass of wine or kombucha or something friendly. We can let everything go. How to maintain what's called emotional resilience to come back to neutral is the same thing as muscular resilience in the body. We squeeze, alert, attentive, hyperpresence, let it go, complete relaxation. But we need to be able to snap and be hypervigilant when we need it. And that range is the health.
not staying at zero. Make sense? And the same way with the pelvic floor. So don't be afraid of squeeze, release, squeeze, release. Test it out and have fun with it. And like try it out when you're in the line at the grocery store. Should I squeeze now? What happens if I squeeze now? Do I feel stuck or can I do 5% and then I feel happy? And if I feel angry right now, should I squeeze more and that gives me a root or should I let it all go and then I actually get more angry? I'm just giving you various scenarios that you could discover, none of which are absolutes. So the traditional teaching is that from the moment you come out of bed in the morning, there's a connection into the pelvic floor. And that connection exists on a continuum that is not all or nothing. And that's important. Just like any muscle, you can squeeze or release. You can also little squeeze, little release. Or you can tense or you can elongate, but it's still enervated or filled with uh, activation. So in the same way, you work with the pelvic floor. Traditionally, we start the practice, we try to keep it engaged. To what degree? 5%, all the way up to 90%. I usually like to say never go for 100% because you want to save 10% for other things, you know? So if you think about that from the first moment you breathe in, A, come inhale, you raise your hands. I like a light activation, maybe 5-10% activation of the pelvic floor. For the first breath, it increases on the second breath to maybe 10, 20%. The third breath stays at 10, 20%. Chaturanga, give me a big, strong squeeze, maybe all the way up to 50, 70%. Upward dog, give me back to 20%. Downward dog, I'm back at 10%. And so in this way, you're driving. You know, what do you do when you're driving? Hold steady at 40 miles an hour. No, this is the worst driver. You know, so you want to be a little like, I go a little faster, I go a little slower. Look, it's time to go faster. We go faster. Now I go slower. I can go slower, right? So in that way, you have this continuum. Many people misunderstand Mula Bandha as, I squeeze and I never let go. So if we think about that, then it's bonkers, you know? So we have, it's a muscle. It's an activation. I have a little, I need it now. I don't need it now. I put it in park. When do you not need it? Shavasana. You lie down. You take rest, right? You park your Mula Bandha. When else do you park your mula bandha? What do you think? Any guesses? Sleeping. Sleeping. What else? Hmm? You go to the bathroom. You do not take it your mula bandha. Does everybody agree with that? Right? It, 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 I have to say that because, you know, sometimes there's someone that's like, I squeeze all the time. Here some people very good students, you know? They'll never let it go. And they go to the bathroom and they're like, I don't know how I'm supposed to do this. And they're like, well, <laughs> let the teaching go at that moment. <laughs> Absolutely. That's totally what I'm able to tune more into on this is when it's it's almost married to breath too. Seems like that's when you can really tune into that aspect yeah. of, of of what is the proper ratio mm-hmm. of how much does it get engaged. Absolutely. That's kept coming to me as you were speaking. So Absolutely. Yeah, no, thank you. Absolutely. I love that. Yeah, really. I think that's the first time I really started to discover that aspect of um, that ratio aspect. How much? Like, mm-hmm. Because it is that thing when you first start to practice, they're talking about this locking, these bondages, these locked, and, and it's, it's really so much tied to the breath. Mm-hmm. And that's. I think that can be a really good way to play with it in a way it's with with a real consciousness of 
where your breath is with it. Because I think then you can find, you can even maybe even activate it in a more relaxed way. Absolutely. Way. Yeah. And the breath changes too, right? So sometimes you come and you may have a practice where you suddenly realize, wow, I'm not breathing today. No breathing, no bandhas, you know? And then the next day you come and, wow, my breath is so deep and harmonious. Or maybe it shifts halfway through the practice. Or sometimes people breathe and you can see that they're squeezing their mula bandha too much. They're breathing too aggressively. They're like, <sighs> we're ready to like blow up in there. And they're like, okay, calm down. My Patavi uh, Joyce a couple of times, uh, there, was, there was a couple of people that would come and they would have this like, you know, like I'm ready to blow myself up kind of breathing. And he just wouldn't touch them. He'd just be like, all right, sort yourself out, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, you know, some of the people, they calm down, and some of the people, they stop coming back, and they would be really mad after practice. He didn't touch me. He didn't assist me. I can't believe it. And like, okay, why do you think you didn't get any attention? Look at you, you know? You're like, you know, like I actually want to leave uh, too, so see you later, buddy, you know? But then, you know, some people, then they chill out after some years, and then suddenly, then again... Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then still there are some days where, like, I, I've had a couple of times where I've traveled and, you know, like travel, especially with intense jet lag, like 12 hour jet lag or something like that really uh, disturbs the, the whole body. And I've had a couple of times where I've started practice after a long travel and it took me half the practice just to breathe again. And I was just so grateful for the practice. Because, wow, uh, you know, imagine if I didn't have that, then how many days before I would have found my breath to arrive in the new location? I was really grateful for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Scarlett, did you have a question before? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's your question? A oh, a couple questions. Um, so, it only relates to women, I guess. I've heard men have their own cycle, but they don't have. <laughs> um, I have a real one. And um, I'm just wondering, like, you know, six days off, six days, and, and then there's the moon day, and then the new moon, you don't practice on those days, but my real moon days, you know, when I'm mm-hmm. eating, right? And then I just don't know if, like, I should be taking off. I have been, but, like, I have been taking off, like, the first two days. But I don't know if I should completely run dry before I go back in, or <laughs> is it like, like, can I just do when I feel better again? Or, like... Or it does have a period like before the the full moon, and then the full moon gets her not ready to go, and everybody's like, "Don't practice." And I'm like, <laughs> I hear you. Yeah, it's annoying. I hear you. It's annoying. You know. And I'd like to be in cycle with the moon. Like, yeah. I'd like to be with yeah. the moon. Sometimes I am. Sometimes I hear I'm you. Fine. No, I know. One time I went to I was in Mysore, and then we were practicing, and it, you know, uh, then suddenly. Uh, Patabi Joyce announced, no practice, three days, black moon. And I was like, what's this? Three days? Three days, no yoga. What do you mean three days? You know, three days. And then I think, like, I started to practice the next day, and then, like, I got my cycle, and I was like, oh, I just took three days off. Now I have my cycle. What am I going to do? I was like, oh, let me go eat some waffles. You know, and I was like, permission to eat waffles and lie down. This is fabulous. I think, number one, if you practice more than 10 years, then you're like, excuse me, when am I allowed to still lie in and take waffles? You know, so like twice a month, new moon and full moon. Now, I, because I have my cycle, I also get more days. Uh, can there be delivery of waffles? on? Because I don't want to be making them on those days, right? So I think, number one, it, after 10 years, you start looking for, like, when can I not practice? And then I'm doing the right thing. Number two, uh, you know, it, the, the, if you feel that you need something physical on those other days, 
my teacher always said, you can do like a relaxed, almost like a restorative practice. You just shouldn't do anything on your cycle that does too much of pressing into the lower abdomen. See the, um, the ovaries and the psoas touch within the female anatomy, within the biologically female anatomy, I should say. So then when this is happening, then um, when, the, when the hormones are being emitted during the, the, the time of menstruation, then this can impact the ability of your iliopsoas to support your back. So this is why we don't want to do anything that's doing deep bundle work. Um, it can also disturb the balance of the hormone cycle. So we just want to basically don't press on this area and don't squeeze or twist on this area and don't do deep back bends during those first two days. Also try not to go too much upside down because how are you going to go upside down without your iliopsoas? Exactly. Right. So what you can do those two days, you feel, oh, the moon was there. I took the full moon off and now I'm on my moon. What can I do? I feel I don't want to just lie there and eat waffles. Too much waffles. Even too many waffles is a good thing. Too, it starts to be a bad thing. It was a good thing. Now three days of waffles, please no more waffles. I want to jump back already. Then you had so many waffles, you feel you can't jump back anymore. So then, then you can take some other practice. You can do a restorative practice. You can just don't do anything that challenges this area. You feel you want to move, you need some cardio, go for a walk. You know, this is totally fine. But the idea is, it's not that we, the body needs to be like treated like a little delicate thing at that moment. We're just trying to not disturb the hormone balance of the body. Okay. Make sense? Yeah. You come back to the practice, modify, and you're, you have to listen to the body. You feel the pressure doesn't feel good. Don't put the, modify the half lotus. You feel, ah, oh, my body doesn't like to be upside down. Don't be upside down. And we can modify shoulder stand and headstand until you feel, oh, I can do it. I have the support. I'm in contact with my bandhas. Okay, so I have more moon days. Mm-hmm. More time. I get more time off. Yeah, me too. Yay! At some moment, that goes away. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah. At some moment, that goes away. So yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Don't look forward to that. <laughs> yeah. No more waffles. Mm-hmm. And then I wanted to also know, like, this one time I was taking Mysore with another instructor, and she told me that in Mysore you don't do chakrasana. Really? Chakrasana? Backwards roll? Maybe she doesn't, you know, so what, what, what Sharad says these days is, uh, you know, take Chakrasana, roll back or jump back, Chaturanga. So he essentially says, look, if it hurts your neck, don't do it. You don't have to force it. You have a neck injury, bothers your neck, don't do it. Jump back. If you like it, then do it. Also, if there's no space, don't do it. You know, this is, I think this is within human reason. You know, once I was in a small room and uh, I did, I was, when, this was when I was first starting the practice and I was like, I have to do Chakrasana. I felt like if I didn't do the Chakrasana, I was doing something wrong. And then I whacked the door, you know, and, and this is not fun. The poor door, it was just lying there. And then, and then, you know, so you don't have space, don't do it. As it goes for any posture, you know, you're trained to raise your hands out to the side in the sun salutations and someone is standing next to you and you whack them in the face. Don't do that. You know, just put your hands up in front. It's not, this is not the tradition. People get obsessed with, I have to do this or that. So you chakrasana is easy for you or, or you don't have a neck thing, then try it. You have a neck thing and you don't need to do chakrasana. The teacher told me that there's no chakrasana as a five so Maybe for her. Okay. So this is the, maybe for her. So this is one thing that that goes on very much in the method is something that that for example Patabi Joyce or Sharad is sometimes saying you do like this, you do like that, don't do that anymore, and it's for you, not for everyone. 
And that's important. And it might be for you for a period of time, not for everyone. And if you take that, if you as a student, oh, I take that. My teacher told me to do this. This is the way. This is the method. That's how it is forever. Then we make a museum out of the method. And then it becomes a dogma instead of realizing, oh, it wasn't okay that day. Maybe it's okay tomorrow. Maybe it'll shift. Yeah. Cool. Go ahead. One more question. No problem. Um, I've been practicing way more, especially after yeah. And my knees, they're all, they're all right, but they're kind of letting me know like they're unhappy sometimes. Mm. And like right now, they're fine. There's just like a little like I feel like my body's trying to tell me something, you know. And then I want to keep practicing every day, but I don't want to wake up one day and mess up. Like I, I'm, so I'm trying to figure out mm -hmm. what I need to do to like keep this safe, or like, am I sore? Can you get sore in your knees? What's going on? It's a good question. Do I need to like warm up a lot? <laughs> Yeah, no, so the knees are a good question. So first of all, it's super good to be sensitive. Second, when we, when we have some pain or, or sensation in the knee, we're always going to look down to the hip. So the knees are not something that we really want to stretch in the practice, but the knees are something that we want to strengthen and become aware of. So when we're strengthening the knees, then we're looking at strengthening the quadriceps, which are an important muscle group to stabilize your knee. And then we're looking at stretching the hip through external or internal rotation, mostly external rotation yoga practice. Then this, will, this is going to protect your knee by distributing whatever sensations you feel in your knee back to the hip. Mm -hmm. So if you're not able to feel the hip joint moving and rotating and you're feeling sensitivity in the knee, this is the body's language to back off. How do you back off? Oh, uh, load is for me a little weird today. Let me modify. And you may have some days you do lotus and some days you don't. And this is the body's language of talking to you. And this is the sensitivity that will prevent you from injuring yourself. So you have to go in with no expectation. Maybe I do today, maybe I don't. But I'm on my mat and I'm practicing and I'm feeling. And I just felt my hip more than usual. My hip feels tight. Great, I'm not going to push it because I know that tightness in the hip distributes down to the knee because this is not a structural joint. So there's some days the hip may be tighter than others. Now, tightness, particularly... Um, related to a hormone cycle, it goes up and down, up and down, up and down. So, maybe you may, so if you try to expect your body to be the same level of flexibility every day and just make persistent, consistent little gains, it's very likely we'll, we'll injure ourselves. So, but if we go in with an open attitude, I wonder what my hips want to do today. Just like I said before, you make friends with your hips. Hi, my hips. How are you doing today? How do you feel? Oh, you're tight. No problem. We don't do Lotus today. That's totally cool. We're going to do this other thing and we're going to be friends. Just like you would do with your friend. Imagine you had a friend and like, you know, you go for coffee every day and your friend showed up and they were like, man, I feel awful today. You'd be like, come on, buck up. We're going to go get coffee. No, I don't want to see anyone today. You'd be like, all right, well, what do you want to do instead? Are you feeling okay? Should I bring you the coffee? You know, so bring your hips some coffee. Okay. Make sense? Nice. Or tea or whatever. Coffee. Coffee, <laughs> coffee for you. Yeah. Good. Sure. One more question. We got time. Um, I have questions about your protocol for practicing while pregnant. Hmm. Because I feel like my last pregnancy, I, you know, it was my first pregnancy and I was like terrified of everything and thinking you have to do like such a minimum. Anyways, whatever. So I feel like I fell out of my practice. That was like three years ago. And so like, what do you feel like is a good protocol for someone like really the whole pregnancy, but even each trimester, because I hear so many different things, and physically, I feel physically able, but at the same time, I mean, I have 
always have a lot of space in my body, so I don't want to take it too far and then, you know, not have my body be able to regain strength again after I have you know, the second. So, yeah, your pregnancy protocol. Mm. So it's so different uh, woman to woman. So I don't feel like there is a protocol. And I think that's super important because there are, there, you know, there are some, you have to listen to your body. So I've, I haven't tried the pregnancy thing, but I've worked with many women that have. And what I understand is that every woman is different. So I've had some students come in and they just really felt like, look, I really don't feel comfortable practicing. I just want to sit on the mat and breathe. Totally fine. Other women come in and they feel, they feel like they have energy. They feel better after they practice. Great, practice. But my general advice is to change the methodology. You are no longer in the purification. You are in the period of health and happiness. So you do what feels good. Yeah, like I never know how much bunda work to use. I mean, I feel like I immediately think, oh, wait, this is going to help me, especially for but we don't want to be you know you don't want to be drawing in so we're not so it's this drawing in and then and then the idea again is we're not trying to uh, like purify we're not trying and so so we have to remember that ashtanga yoga is a tapas right so it's this it's this fire of purification that's using the physical to target you know our samskaras our obstacles and shine light on those during this period you are not doing tapas and that's important this is not a tapas that you're doing right now. This is just a very kind of like happy body period to keep your body happy and healthy. So whatever asanas, and it could be in the series, it could be outside of the series, whatever asanas you feel are beneficial to your body, you do that. Yeah. And you watch your breath and you make sure your breath is calm and harmonious. You watch your level of temperature. If you feel your temperature rising too much, yourself getting heated, you're pushing too hard. Yeah. So you watch those things and everyone's body is going to have different capabilities, but you're going to slow down the practice and you're going to just really tune in and listen. And it'll be different every day, every day. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. I think that like like lately I've just been doing modified primary really even since I had my first son and and that's been great but it's like I was like geared up this year I'm like okay <laughs> I'm gonna start practicing again and I'm gonna make it back to intermediate and even if it takes a year and then it's like oh you're pregnant again I'm like oh my god <laughs> <laughs> so like it's the same thing. If you've been doing like modified primary in the time in between, now's not the time to try to go beyond that, right? So now's the time to maintain. So usually it's well, usually what's said is whatever your consistent practice is, kind of within that, then that consistent practice creates the foundation for you to feel good in the body. So we don't want to change the routine of the body too much. So if you were to suddenly stop, then your body would be like, what's wrong with me? Am I sick? Yeah. So we keep some like consistency and persistency so you can again communicate health and happiness in the realm of the body. Uh, and, and again, there are some other postures that at some moment you want to start adding in that are not in the traditional Ashtanga practice, like the wide leg squat, malasana, and some other things that are just going to be beneficial for you definitely in the second and third trimester. There's a bunch of books about that. I think like the, I think uh, Gita Iyengar has a great book about that. can definitely recommend that. Um, but I would say definitely don't need to stick to the series. You know, so we can start really modifying and really adding things in that, that you feel are beneficial to your body during this time. Yeah, okay. I mean, if they feel good, do you think back bends are okay? Yeah. Yeah, yeah if they feel good. Okay. At some moment, they might not, but if they feel good. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
But you have to go in every day with the question, does this feel good? Is this right for me? And remember, no tapas. That's probably the most important thing. I am not in purification mode. I am in happiness mode. Yeah, no, yeah. yeah, yeah, no, it's not that. So we have to change it. This is another practice. This itself is another practice where we're moving tapas. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like when I did become pregnant the first time, it was so challenging because I physically like couldn't move my leg mm. the line that I wanted to. So I had you to change the line. Yeah, yeah, I discovered like a different way of practice. Like mm-hmm. I'm so attached to the physical because you know it's just yeah. it's almost easier in a way to just like get really into the physical, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, it really challenged. Yeah, it really challenged the other parts of the practice that like. Mm. The ego doesn't really like to do. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, and see if, see if you can, again, just try to find that happy space. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, as we come towards a uh, conclusion, I wanted to ask a couple of points that you could clarify. Okay. One would be, as you know, practicing regular is important. Our teachers, Tommy Joyce and Sherrod, emphasize regularity. But they also emphasize philosophy. He's famous for saying mixing both is best. I wanted to hear yeah. how you would describe to someone or how would you get started to get into philosophy? Oh gosh, thanks, Eagle. That's the truth. It's a super good question. So, you know, the idea that yoga is just physical is something that we could consider to be an act of cultural appropriation. The idea, you know, that yoga is divorced from its spiritual roots and its philosophical intention is an act of harm to the origin culture of yoga. So I think it serves uh, the interests of everyone who's a long-term yoga practitioner at some moment. Maybe not, you know, immediately we can start to just plant some seeds. Like yoga comes from, yoga is a spiritual path that has its roots in a very traditional spiritual culture within India. The aim of yoga While the physical stuff is nice, the aim of yoga is spiritual awakening. What are the tools of spiritual awakening? How do we awaken? Then we can seek the tradition, the the wisdom traditions that are the origin culture of yoga. So the three main texts that my teacher, Patabi Joyce, recommended everybody to read, the Bhagavad Gita. If you haven't read the Gita, this is a wonderful, wonderful thing to read within the iconography of yoga. Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, which kind of act as a, a rubric or a roadmap for the inner work of yoga. And then finally, the Hatha Yoga Pradipika. Hatha Yoga Pradipika is a wonderful text to give some kind of foundational elements uh, to the relationship between asana and the spiritual development that happens from the continual practice of asana. And these are three really easy places to start. Um, uh, so when we're thinking about this connection between the spiritual and the physical, to seek this ancient knowledge is to respect it. Um, more than reading the book from the Western standpoint, perhaps the most important thing for spiritual seekers on the path of yoga to think about is to understand how to seek, how to approach the philosophy. So traditionally, when we study the philosophy, we don't study the philosophy to deconstruct it, to critique it, to debunk it, to argue with it. But we we approach it from the perspective of this sacred piece of knowledge, which has survived thousands of generations, has now landed by the grace of God in my lap. How can I both honor this by respecting it, by, by, by learning it, and, and by integrating this into my journey? And this is, this is a methodology, or you could call it the pedagogical framework of Swadhyaya. And this is the traditional teaching of spiritual self-inquiry, which uh, requires us to be reverent, 
rather than, um, you know, uh, egotistical, you could say. So I think, I think that's a good place to start. If we're newer to the practice, just understanding the origins of yoga and like pointing back to, and just even taking a moment to say, I practice yoga today because thousands of generations of yoga students and teachers in India kept this knowledge alive. So even just that, I think, is a really good and important beginning. <laughs> I want to hear how you describe. We've noticed, like in our practice, we have Ujjayi Pranayama. And the time I spent with my teachers, they simply just started describing it as deep free breathing. Yeah, not a new thing, but they're just even making it clear. Mm-hmm. And I love how free is in there. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes people will say, well, an extended breath, and they're doing like an 11 second exhale, which doesn't have free in <laughs> So I wanted to hear how you describe it. Ujjayi Pranayama or deep free breathing, just as a description. Yeah, that's super. Thanks, Eagle. So from what I understand, the Ujjayi Pranayama is a pranayama technique, right? And so the Ujjayi Pranayama is minimum 10-second inhale, 10-second exhale. And then it can go all the way up to one-minute inhale, one-minute exhale. So we breathe in continuously for one minute. Then it turns around and breathe out continuously for one minute. BKS Iyengar has a great demonstration of this. It's really wonderful. I've tried a couple of times, and I really feel very challenged by it. I don't know if you have ever tried to breathe for one minute continuously. It's extremely challenging. It's mentally, physically, I feel very impatient. You know, okay, it's going in, it's going in, it's going in. Okay, it's still going in. 30 seconds later, I'm still going in. My head's going to explode. Then somehow we need to breathe out. So this... This is a technique, it's a pranayama technique. So the ujjayi pranayama is a pranayama technique. And then we do 10 second inhale, 10 second exhale, eventually going all the way up to one minute inhale, one minute exhale. And Ashtanga, we use the ujjayi pranayama when we're doing the pranayama, right? So when we sit to do the pranayama, we, we aim for that minimum 10 second inhale, 10 second exhale when we're doing those breath retentions. Um, and the place where we should do that during the practice is really try to do that long, long breath, Padmasana position at the end, and Shirshasana and headstand. And so this is the basic foundation of the technique, but we can't do that during asana, otherwise it's too rigid. So in asana, we have deep, we have free breathing with sound, you know, deep free breathing. And this allows you to modulate your nervous system and go a little slower, a little deeper, a little longer, just so long as we're kind of keeping inhale and exhale relatively in a mirror and in, to each other. And then the idea, um, uh, in, in my understanding of it, is that it gives us more space within the asana practice to kind of make the breath match the, the true state of our nervous system and to create more emotional balance so that we're not in this rigidity of 10-second inhale, 10-second exhale, this year. That's, we're not robotic. Sometimes we need a faster breath. That's reality. Sometimes we're going to have a deeper breath. We may even go beyond 10-second inhale, 10-second exhale, particularly in forward bends if you're practicing for a long time, you do deep forward folds. But either way, this idea is to have the magic and the mystery of the life force kind of be contained in the breath, right? So, so this is, this is I, did, so I didn't know that aloha was meant uh, the breath like that. That's so cool. That's wonderful. I love that. And, and, and the idea is that when we work with the prana, the life, right, the life force, that we're touching the magic and the mystery of our life with each breath. Hmm? So there's this kind of like old yogic myth that says we breathe in and then the whole course of our life happens and then we breathe out. So the life is really one breath and all this other stuff happens in the meanwhile, but that 
it's really just one cycle of the breath. And that the practice is the same. Our first breath, the akam, the inhale, comes from the first breath. And we breathe out, and then it's over, right? And so we have this cycle. And then we have something very interesting, which is samastitihi, the only posture not associated with inhale or exhale. Very interesting when we think about that. Why are we not, so we're supposed to be standing there doing what? Not breathing. But we're breathing, but we're not breathing. It's only posture that's not associated with you enter when you exhale, we breathe in five times, we stand there to, em- to symbolize emptiness. The space where we're neither breathing in nor breathing out. And this is very interesting when we talk about like the magic and the mystery of life. Because to understand, I breathe in and I receive life. Where were you before? Right? I breathe out and my life is finished. Where do I go? Right? I breathe in. I started the practice. I breathe out. The practice is finished. Where was I? What did I learn? What will I carry with me into the after? Right? Whether that after is after practice or that after is after the life. I found it amazing that the time I spent in Mysore, I don't have memories of my teachers telling me or telling anyone to stretch more. <laughs> like always, deep breathing, slowly, mm-hmm. slowly, steady, steady, no problem. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Lastly, I'm not knowing if anyone has another question or if we're going to wrap it up. As of course, we're using like Surya, energy, sun, breathing, Another component, of course, is food. I know that you are eating a vegan diet, you're eating plant nutrition. Any ideas on how how that's worked for you or how to Mm. find balance with that refined diet? Yeah, no, it's a super good question. When I started doing Ashtanga yoga, uh, I'll be honest, I had really bad eating habits. You know, I treated uh, Mentos, you know, like the candy, as a food group. That was like a food group for me. I was like, time for my Mentos break, you know? And this was very exciting, you know? And uh, the nutrients were high on the levels of, you know, like FD&C Red Lake number seven <laughs> and, you know, yellow number four and blue number seven. And so these were my, my vitamins that I would take every day around four o'clock. It was really, a, I could count on that once a day. Um, and I started practicing Ashtanga yoga. I had done Hatha yoga before, just here and there, and some Hatha yoga out of books. After about... After about two weeks of practicing Ashtanga yoga, nobody told me, look, you should change your diet. One day I opened the Mentos package and I looked at the ingredients and I was like, what I'm eating? What is this? This doesn't look like food, but it's very tasty, but it doesn't look like food. So then I went to my yoga teacher the next day and I said, excuse me, I think I eat strange things. What should I eat during this yoga practice? And then, and then my teacher, at the, my, 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 my first Ashtanga teacher uh, was Govinda Kai. And at the time, he was a raw vegan. And he told me to read this book from Gabriel Cousins, um, which was Healing with Whole Foods. I read that book. And, you know, I changed my diet within, like, three months. Um, but I went too extreme in the beginning. So, you know, I went into this culture. And it was like, raw vegan. And Govinda was like, this month I only eat watermelons. I was like, okay. <laughs> So we only eat, so I went from like Mentos to like, we only eat watermelons. And I was like, yeah, I don't really like watermelons that much. Can I, can I eat something else? We have to eat seasonally. Okay, you know, I'm from Florida. Like, I don't know what's seasonal. I'm very confused. I was also living in New York. I was freezing, trying to eat only watermelons. It was very difficult. And they're like, put a little cayenne pepper on the watermelons. Like, this is disgusting. You know? <laughs> and, which I don't recommend. I mean, unless you love cayenne pepper and watermelon, then go do your thing. Um, but after a little, like I kind of went very extreme and my whole body freaked out. 
And, you know, after a while, I realized that for me, extremism in any way is too much for me. So although I was really happy that I kind of did a massive detox by doing this raw vegan thing for a period of time, I've kind of, I definitely softened from, from that hard edge into just following a plant-based diet. And for me also, plant-based means like plant-based life. So I take that into everything for me personally. And I've noticed a couple of things. First of all, um, a, just a plant-based diet is good for me. And this allows me to eat, you know, um, like I remember when I first tried that like raw vegan diet, I would like eat a tofu stir fry and be like, I'm cheating. I'm like, this is really healthy food. I mean, you know, compared to Mentos, like a, a tofu stir fry is doing pretty well. You know what I mean? And I would be like, this is cheating. I'm eating cooked tofu. And I'm like, okay, we need to calm down. You know, like we're going to take the average sliver of the diet choices of half the people in the United States of America. And I'm freaking out about eating, you know, stir fried tofu. We need to calm down. So at some moment I realized this is too much. Like I can't go to any restaurants. I can only go to that one restaurant that does like that. And then, then, you know, when I went to India for the first time, I, this, was, this is where I completely derailed the raw vegan thing. Because when I first went to India, um, it was more than 20 years ago. We were practicing in that tiny little shala in Lakshmipuram, and there were 40 students there, and they got less and less. By the time I left, there were 20 students. There was no, there was no way I could eat raw vegan food, so I just ate Indian food while I was there. Um, and, you know, it helped me relax. And I realized, for me, extremism of any type is, is, is I need to find a, a window where I can be relaxed and happy about what I'm eating. And I need to, to, to love the food that I'm eating. And for me, that's the, the, the thing that's very important. And the only way that I can love the food that I'm eating is to also love the whole systems that go into the process, where it came from, you know, how the beings that were treated, uh, whether those are plant beings or animal beings or human beings, how all of that was treated to bring that item onto my plate. And that's the way I can love that food. And that's the way I can welcome that into my body. And if I don't love that, I, I just don't eat it. It's pretty much as simple as that. So it's been a continued studying trial and error because I think most everyone here has probably seen a video of yours or <laughs> of a demo where you clearly have connection, muscle, tone, tissue, and strength. Mm-hmm. How could you possibly have strength only breathing in plants and what most people would think? Yeah, you know, I've never had uh, so much of a question about that for myself, but I will say that you know, um, that I think it is important to uh, give yourself a long transition period. I think kind of what I did was a little actually quite unhealthy to go from a super unhealthy diet and then suddenly be raw vegan. I don't recommend that for anyone. I think it's really intense. I think what's better is if you're worried about nutritional balance, then don't try to do it on your own to get your blood work done and work with the nutritionist who understands what your goals are. And then you can work with your body, your blood type, your energy level, how your system works and modulate everything because we come into this life with different things. Someone may have type 1 diabetes. Someone may have type 2 diabetes. Someone may have other metabolic issues that they were born with. And then if you're just going cold turkey off of videos on the internet, I think this can sometimes be not so healthy. So if we want to optimize our body, and this is a practice where we need to optimize our body, then if you're going from a primarily meat-based diet, if you eat meat, dairy, alcohol, all of these other things that are ultra-processed foods, and then you wake up and realize, I want to change my diet, work with someone that can help you modulate that over a period of time. If you're worried about not getting enough protein, talk to the nutritionist and say, I 
I love protein. I need to get protein. Then you talk to nutritionists. You say there's lots of vegan protein sources. Maybe you need a protein shake once a day. Maybe you need to have, uh, you know, Patavi Joyce used to recommend for Ashtanga practitioners something extremely disgusting, which is essentially the old-fashioned protein shake. I don't know if you ever heard him say this, but he would say to take mung beans that have been sprouted, so sprouted mung beans, little green mung beans, until they have a tail, sprout them two, three days, put them in water in darkness, and they sprout a tail, and they turn into, the, you know, then they pre-digest the beans, they have more protein, and he would say, take these sprouted mung beans, put them into a blender, a little bit of jaggery and water, drink this after practice. Bean juice. Oh, this is so yummy. Yeah. So, you know, I think uh, it's possible. Wonderful. I just wanted to, before we conclude, share a story I believe I've shared with everyone a little bit. It's a really cool full circle moment for us. Pretty much to the day, within a week, 19 years ago, Kino and I happened to be roommates. We rented a house in South India. It was on my first of 10 trips to study. And we were roommates in Mysore, India. We walked to my first Mysore style class in Mysore, India. I wound up going back for another four years. I was authorized as a teacher. I went for another couple of years. I wound up going for 10 years because it's an inexhaustible subject. It's, it's, you can continually grow and learn. So it was really special that Kino was coming here as we were concluding our 20th year, traveling here with her mother and to come and teach our final day to conclude our 20th year. And it's, it's, uh, I feel really happy about it. It's a, an amazing cycle of back and forth. I'd run into Kino in India at times. She's been off building a school in Miami and traveling to almost all the countries in the world sharing Ashtanga Yoga. I've been holding it down here in our little North Shore community. <laughs> so to have her come here and to cap our 20th year, I just wanted to thank, thank you so you. much. Thank you. Thank you, Eagle. Really my pleasure. I still yes. remember walking into the Shala and seeing you there. We yeah. had a mutual friend. Yes. And then Charles. Respect yeah. to Charles. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So Thanks everyone for coming. Um, if there's any further questions we can ask in just a few moments, but I wanted to uh, just acknowledge nice. the community and yeah. Kino for coming. Thank you. Thanks everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you everyone. Thank you so much. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS. And that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit, which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.